this meeting, it's a great pleasure to have Melinda Powers back. I say back, she did a master's here a while ago. Um, and uh, it was a, we were working on it for a long time. Uh, and then she went to uh, get the doctorate at UCLA and moved about uh, ten, uh, a bit more than 10 years ago to City University of New York. And she's one of those people who has managed to infiltrate uh, non-classical departments and interdisciplinary studies while remaining, having a Greek theater as her central interest. So uh, she's in the Department of English. Um, she's at the uh, John Jay School of, uh, of Criminal Justice, which means that she comes into a lot of the content of people whose primary interests are in forensic uh, science and in, uh, in uh, um, judicial studies. Uh, she interacts with people in English, she interacts with people in theater studies, um, and she has just brought out a book, and literally within the last two months. Uh, August. Oh, right. yeah, very recently, and there it is. Um, and uh, Melinda is going to tell us something about that this afternoon. It's a great pleasure to have you here again, Melinda. And over to you. Okay. Um, good afternoon, everybody. I, I want to thank you all for coming and thank Fiona and, and Oliver and everyone at the APGRD for inviting me. I am really thrilled to be here, especially because, as Oliver mentioned, my work on reception started here at the archive. And I think I was the first postgraduate to actually start using the resources here to write a dissertation which I would be very proud of if it weren't as Oliver let on about 20 years ago that that <laughs> happened and it make me feel so very old. Um, so I'll just have to pretend I was a prodigy. <laughs> um, but a lot has happened in the field in the last 20 years. Reception has come a long way thanks to pioneers like Oliver and Edith Hall and Fiona and as well as many other famous names. In 1998, again so long ago, um, Helena Foley gave a presidential address to the then American Philological Association on modern performances and adaptations of Greek tragedy. And that speech began to lend interest and legitimacy to reception studies in the States. I was just at the annual Society for Classical Studies meeting in San Diego, where I had the privilege of helping to organize the appearance of Chaconic's playwright and adapter of Greek tragedy, Luis Alfaro, as a, featured, as a featured keynote speaker. His talk, which about 150 people attended and which was followed by a panel on his work, showed how much SCS has begun to open up to theater practitioners who may not be trained as classicists, but who nevertheless fulfill the mission of the SCS of quote, advancing knowledge, understanding, and appreciation of the ancient Greek and Roman world and its enduring value. Artists like Luis, and like the ones I'll discuss here today, are doing the work that helps to move the field into more diverse and inclusive directions. But that's not to say that the relationship between classics and underrepresented communities is a new one. And I begin my book by explaining how recent scholarship has demonstrated that Greek drama has often played a critical role in movements of resistance. Um, for example, in, in Justine McConnell's work, she covers that. In 19th and early 20th century America, for example, much of Greek drama was imported through European theatrical companies, 
But at the same time, as Fiona McIntosh, Justine McConnell, and Patrice Rankin have explained, quote, Blacks and women read and engaged in the subterranean classics to craft their values in the new world, those of freedom, equality, literacy, art, and so on. And the Americas, the closeted, and those who pass, women, blacks, Latinos, Asians, and so on, take up the classics at their, uh, as their own at an unprecedented rate. According to Emily Greenwood, quote, the discipline of classics may have been complicit with imperialism, but this is properly a phenomenon of reception, how Greece and Rome have been assimilated to narratives of empire. Thus, in opposition to the narrative that conflates the study of classics with an elite white imperialist agenda, the historical record demonstrates an alternative perspective, namely as Mackintosh, McConnell, and Rankin have explained that in 19th and early 20th century America, quote, the artifacts that could reify freedom and equality were for blacks, as well as women, just beneath the surface and very often ancient Greek in their provenance, end quote. Following in this tradition, a variety of contemporary US theater artists have been resignifying, so to speak, the assumed connection of Greek tragedy to the colonial past. Their productions have been recycling Greek tragedy in ways that negate the elitist associations with the genre to address instead cultural, sexual, and racial formations in diverse communities from East LA cholas to disabled veterans. At times in the book, I refer to this process of revising Greek tragedy as reclaiming. Reclaiming is a term which Harvey Young, uh, performance theorist Harvey Young, has used to refer to such reimaginings in the African-American community. Reclaiming, he explains, quote, does not require that we erase the past and script a new one. It is to remain aware of its previous claims, even as you articulate your own. It is to know the past and the present as you work toward creating a future." End quote. The theatrical medium is especially conducive to this process of recycling, reimagining, and reclaiming because in Marvin Carlson's words, quote, there seems to be something in the nature of dramatic presentation that makes it a particularly attractive repository for the storage and mechanism of the continued recirculation of cultural memory, end quote. The theater artists I'm about to discuss have exploited this function of theater as memory machine to challenge stereotypical cultural representations of African-Americans, Latinxes, women, LGBTQs, and veterans. My objective here today is to introduce you to the book by giving just an overview of some of the material in it, including the productions I cover, as well as my theoretical lens for studying them. I'm not going to take time to explain the plots of all the adaptations, um, but of course I can explain productions in more detail if anyone has questions later. Um, if, if there's some time, we might even get a little bit closer into the productions of Luis Alfaro, which I could explain a little bit more detail and show more carefully um, some of the things that I talk about in chapter two. But overall, what I want to show today is just to illustrate a trajectory of socially engaged contemporary performances over the last decade in the United States. I'll focus on a few performances, but it's important to note many other performances of Greek drama that have been produced by or for underrepresented communities in the US. For example, 
the National Asian American Theater Company's Antigone, performed in New York in 2014, Rodessa Jones' ongoing San Francisco-based program, The Medea Project, Theater for Incarcerated Women, the Alaskan Yipik Antigone that toured Europe in 1985, Theater for the Blind's Oedipus, performed in New York in 2005, Five Lesbian Brothers, Oedipus at Palm Springs, New York in 2005, and the African-American Shakespeare Company's Medea in San Francisco in 2014. These productions could all be included in a genealogy of performances of Greek drama produced by or for underrepresented communities on the US stage. However, the productions that I've chosen to study include those of Takewing and Sword Productions, the Classical Theater of Harlem, Luis Alfaro, the Faux-Real Theater Company, Split Bridges, Aaron Mark, Tim O'Leary, Elaine Rochelle, and Aquila Theater. I chose these productions in particular because of my interest in live performance. They're all productions that I've seen, primarily in small off-off Broadway theaters. So my interest in the book is, is not in examining play scripts or in interrogating deeply the many connections between the contemporary and ancient performances. Rather, I want to show the ways in which the performance techniques in these productions can work as powerful tools to challenge stereotypes and work toward justice reform. My interest in exploring the concept of stereotypes emerged from the research itself. When I started to use the lens of performance studies to think critically about what I had seen in the theater, the idea of stereotypes presented itself. Perhaps because of its ubiquity, the problem of the stereotype is addressed in distinct ways by a number of performance studies theorists whose work has benefited my study. Harvey Young's Theory of the Black Body, Prenda Dixon Gottschild's Africanist Presence, Jose Munoz's Disidentification, Brian Eugenio Herrera's Executing the Stereotype, all of these have been particularly influential ideas. The ideas relate to the contemporary communities whose productions I feature and have been the focus of key studies in the field of performance. So they allowed me to engage in a critical dialogue about cultural identity that was already taking place in the field. As Juana Maria Rodriguez has explained, identities are related to space and motion and are developed through encounters with language, law, culture, and public policy. She says, quote, identity is about situatedness and motion, embodiment and spatiality. It is about a self that is constituted through and against other selves in context that serve to establish the relationship between the self and the other, end quote. While such discussions of identity formation are complex and multifaceted, I narrowed my discussion of the subject by focusing on the ways in which artists situated in the US have been using Greek tragedy as a framework through which to exercise identity practices that aim to take back, revise, challenge, resignify, reclaim, or execute stereotypical representations, a subject of interest shared by both scholars of performance and classical reception. But I also discovered how in the process, some artists may inadvertently use Greek tragedy to reinforce the very stereotypes they aim to destroy. To give a bit of an overview of my chapters, chapter one explores three Harlem-based productions of Greek drama. 
The first is Take Wing and Soar's Medea. This is Jason, uh, the character of Jason from this play. It was performed in Harlem at the National Black Theater in 2008. And that is Medea, played by Trezana Beverly, a Tony Award-winning uh, actress. Um, and she played the role of Medea. Again, this was a production in 2008. Uh, the next production I discuss in this chapter is uh, Steve Carter's Pekong. And this is the character of Medea from that play. This was produced by the same theater company just a couple of years later. And the third production I discuss is the Classical Theater of Harlem's Trojan Women. This is a different theater company, again, uh, located in Harlem, a, a bit of a ways away from the other theater company. Um, Could you go back because we couldn't see some of those because of the light? Absolutely. That's Tickling and Soar's Medea. That's Jason. Trezana Beverly playing Medea. Uh, Steve Carter's Pekong by the same theater company, Tickling and Soar, but in 2010. And this is a small, very small theater company, uh, Tickling and Soar. This is a larger theater company. Uh, for example, the difference in ticket prices are $20 for the first and about $50 for, for the Classical Theater of Harlem. Uh, and this was in 2008. So all of these productions took place within a couple of years of each other. That's Hecuba. We'll go back to, whoops, going the wrong way. So I discussed these three productions. I say a lot about these productions, actually, the different coverage that they got in the press, um, the time they were situated in, which was around the time of Barack Obama's election in the States. Um, but what I focus on is drawing on Harvey Young's theory of the black body. I argue that these performances pose a challenge to implicit and explicit biases against African Americans by demonstrating that black and white America are not separate traditions, but are instead inextricably connected. I argue that each work challenges what uh, Harvey Young has referred to as the idea of the black body. That is, when popular connotations of blackness are mapped across or internalized within black people. The performances challenge cultural stereotypes of African Americans in a number of ways, and by promoting a progressive idea of a hybrid America, one that looks toward a hybrid future while acknowledging a segregated past of racial tradition that continues to prevent opportunities for artists of color. So again, I can get into more details about my arguments later, but for now, I just want to give an overview of, of all of these various productions and show some images. So moving on to chapter two, this is where I explore MacArthur Award Fellow Luis Alfaro's production of Electricity Dad at the Mark Taper Forum, Los Angeles. Um, I've seen several different productions of Luis Alfaro's plays, and this is actually still my favorite. Um, I think the director did an excellent job really capturing how Alfaro works um, and showing especially sort of the campiness and the irony that's inherent in his work that sometimes in other productions I've seen gets lost. Um, so this is uh, Electricity Dad in 2005. This is his first adaptation. Uh, the character on the left is La Ify, who's described in the play as a mean-ass chola who uh, 
goes off to the nunnery and comes back, quote unquote, born again. So she's a born again Iphigenia. And uh, she is standing next to her abuela, her grandma. Um, and on the left is Clemencia, the Clytemestra figure. And she's cradling Electricidad, the Electra figure in that play. Um, in particular is sort of the, the use of makeup in this play, how it really signifies very much the culture of the cholas. Um, it's sort of a tradition that goes back all the way to the, to the Pachucas of the 40s and um, has a very, it's a very distinct cultural trait, uh, the women's makeup. And I've heard Luis Alfaro describe the makeup in this production as really acting like a Greek mask in many ways. And I think that's what also really helped make this production a success is that the makeup and the costuming in particular created sort of a distance between the actors who are playing the role and the characters um, that worked very well. Um, the other production I discussed in the chapter, one that I argue I didn't think worked very well, is um, this production at the Dallas Theater Center um, of Oedipus El Rey. It's an adaptation of Sophocles' Oedipus. On the left um, is the chorus, or in the background is the chorus. Um, and then that's Oedipus on the left, uh, uh, speaking with Creon on the right. Uh, this is the Jocasta figure in that play, whose costuming is less descript, I think, than in the Electricity Dad. I thought that created a lot of confusion in this production, um, as well as sort of the absence of the set, not knowing exactly where you are in space or time because of this kind of very abstract bull ring. Um, so I talk about all of that a bit more in the book. The third production I discuss is Mojada, um, which was directed by Jessica Kudzanski at the J. Paul Getty Museum in 2015. This is a production of Euripides' Medea, and um, Alfaro adapted it to comment on the injustices experienced by undocumented workers. That's Medea there on the left by the sewing machine. Uh, the, in the middle is Josefina, who serves as sort of the nurse character. And on your right is Tia, who um, I actually just learned at the conference served as sort of the chorus figure. Uh, she's a solo chorus, and this chorus figure in the play. Um, so in this chapter, these are revision. Um, so in, in, this, in this chapter, I'm interested in the process of executing stereotypes. That's Brian Eugenio Herrera's term for challenging stereotypes of Latinxes. The productions all aim to take back stereotypes, such as that of the Latin gangster, an image immortalized in the cultural imaginary through the 1961 film, A West Side Story. They do so by using humor, combined with poignant social commentary in the manner of the Chicanx performance tradition of Carpa. Carpa is a vaudeville-like performance tradition with stock characters that flourished in Mexico and the southwest of America in the 20s and 30s. Carpa aimed to laugh at and thereby dismantle the stereotypes associated with assimilation. Alfaro uses such techniques as he deftly portrays the connections between ancient Greek tragedy and the, studies faced, and the struggles faced by Chicanxes and undocumented workers. However, despite the playwright's aim of empowering these communities, some of the performances may have inadvertently served to reinforce the very stereotypes against which the production wanted to work, thus illustrating what Brian Eugenio Herrera has observed. 
namely that, quote, the stereotype itself remains an indefatigable obstacle, an unyielding antagonist in a sustained battle over the discursive features of representational truth. Put simply, stereotypes, he says, seems to be impervious to all efforts to extinguish them, always winning, somehow surviving, ever ready to manifest another day, end quote. In other words, uh, he says, those who most loudly oppose stereotypes may actually be their best allies. So following these discussions of Alfaro's plays is a chapter that explores the role of women in contemporary performances. Um, and it, it, I use case studies from both comedy and tragedy, including the Fovril Theater Company's Oedipus XXXY, which was performed in 2012, Split Bridge's Honey, I'm Home, performed in 1989. That's actually the one production I did not see live. I saw a video of that and interviewed um, Lois and Peggy Weaver, who are, who are um, the creators of Split Bridge's. Uh, and the third production I discussed is sort of a contrast to the other two. And I discussed that because it was a very famous Broadway production. Douglas Carter Bean and Lewis Flynn's Lissa Strata Jones performed in 2011. And through these productions, I explore the extent to which costuming and casting choices may reinforce or challenge the male-invented, male-performed idea of woman, with a capital W, performed on the ancient stage. I argue that the employment of women actors in a play written by and for ancient men, the employment of women actors on, the contem on a contemporary stage in a play written by and for ancient men does not preclude a feminist critique. For split britches and faux reels performances have used feminist performance techniques to challenge the gender binary of male and female. So for example, um, this is faux reels production. It was an all-male cast the only uh, actor who identified as a woman is Stephanie Regina on the right, who played Oedipus. And on the left is Tony Namowski uh, playing Jocasta. And that's the all-male chorus. Um, one of them here, this is uh, one of my graduates, former graduate students, Manuel Simons, who helped me quite a bit thinking about this production. Um, and there's Oedipus with the chorus in the background. And there's a very poignant moment in the play. Tony Namowski is just a brilliant actor. Um, I, I wept when it happened in the play. It just brought tears to my eyes when the Jocasta figure is unwigged. Um, uh, it was a very a poignant moment in the play that's sort of ironically at this moment when the actor revealed the, the mark of masculine bold, baldness. It was actually the moment when the character became most feminized, ironically. Um, there is Oedipus, the blinded Oedipus. And I talk a lot when I'm describing this production about how these actors are sort of playing into these gender roles of masculine and feminine and what actually happens. And this is Peggy Shaw on your right, who plays the Admetus character in um, Split Bridge's adaptation of uh, Euripides' Alcestis. And on the left is Lois Weaver. She's sort of the Marilyn Monroe-esque um, figure here. And they are 
uh, known not only in this production, but in many of Split Bridge's work, um, they use feminist performance techniques to challenge the gender binary of male and female. And in particular, in the Split Bridge's production, I discuss Peggy Shaw's performance of Edmetis, which challenges gender norms with the butch femme aesthetic. Um, so that's what Sue Ellen Case has theorized as the gender masquerade of the coupled lesbian su subject. Uh, and that's what uh, Lois and Peggy are most, most known for, sort of playing out that um, butch femme role play. I study Shaw's performance in relation to Stephanie Regina's cross-dress performance of the Oedipus and the all-male cast of Oedipus Rex XXXY, which also draws on queer performance techniques to demonstrate the performative nature of gender. But in contrast to these productions, that's the chorus from Honey, I'm Home. In contrast to these productions um, is my interpretation of Lysistrata Jones, which was performed on Broadway in 2011. And uh, it's a production that I argue inadvertently resulted in the reinforcement of negative depictions of women and essentialist ideas that attach sex to gender. Um, it's sort of played up, I think, stereo representations of men and women. Um, Lissa Strata is the cheerleader trying to get the male basketball team to win a game. Um, and it, it did so with really no sense of irony. Um, it was sort of playing with these ideas of camp, but not quite successfully. And the men really became the sole focus of the women, which made little sense in the contemporary context in which it was set. So that's the Hetaira figure there. She's an invented character in the play. And I talk a bit about her more in the, in the book. Uh, moving on to chapter four. Chapter four also addresses gender by studying three productions produced by and primarily for gay men. Elaine Rochelle's Bacchae from 2007. This is the set from that play. And the set was designed to look like, it took place in West Hollywood, which is a predominantly uh, gay male, well, a predominantly gay neighborhood of Los Angeles. And across the street from the theater, the Celebration Theater is a very famous gay theater. And there was, uh, there was a sex club right across the street from it. And the set was sort of designed to, to look like that sex club across the street. So that's sort of all the graffiti there in the theater. And what looks like litter on this stage is actually um, torn up pieces of the LA Weekly that had sex ads in the back. So he was really trying to create this very decadent um, uh, atmosphere in the play with this all-male chorus who were these beautiful um, club kids. Uh, and the idea was really to show this ideal of um, being a gay male, particularly in West Hollywood, that characters such as the Cadmus and Tiresias figure, as well as the Pentheus figure, couldn't really conform to. And what happens when you're a gay man who can't conform to the mediatized version of gayness? That's what this production particularly explored. Um, Timothy, and there's the Dionysus figure from that play. And that is Pentheus kissing Quintus, who is an invented character. This is another production. This was performed at Gay Fest in New York City in 2008. On the left, I don't know if any of you watch Million Dollar Listing. It's a Bravo show that 
talks about high-end Manhattan real estate, and the actor on the left there, Ryan Searhan, is a big character in Million Dollar Listing now, who doesn't talk to the director of Wrath of Aphrodite anymore, now that he's famous. <laughs> um, on the right is the Adonis figure, uh, who's an invented character in the play. And this production, these are the two goddesses. They were very campy in this play. It was very much sort of like um, uh, the Andorra character in Bewitched. I don't know if you know that um, American TV show, Bewitched. But very kind of campy portrayal of the goddesses. And uh, at the end, there's Adonis cradling Hippolytus. Um, they wind up both dying and going off to the Elysian fields in this production. And it was... Um, uh, performed with the intention, it was before gay marriage was legalized in the U.S., and the production was very much trying to call attention to that. Both the previous production, Elaine Rochelle's Bacchae and this production, the directors clearly had in mind um, working, working toward the fight for gay marriage. This last production was an absolutely amazing experience in the theater. This is Tom Hewitt, who's a brilliant Broadway actor. He's known for his work in the Rocky Horror Show. It's, as well as, he, he typically plays the villain. And he is the all-male, he is the male Medea. Um, and what's really interesting about this production is lots of times Medea can be played by a male, right? Um, but the character is a male Medea, which seems to kind of strip the play of its power entirely. Um, but it actually worked quite brilliantly. Um, and partly because this was through the brilliancy of the actor, Tom Hewitt. So it was a solo uh, performance. And again, I can tell more about the plot later, but if I explained all of the plots in detail of these plays, we'd be here all afternoon. Um, but these are all adaptations that through their use of performance strategies such as camp, an aesthetic characterized by irony, ostentation, and exaggeration, all of these productions engaged in queer performative counter discourses that challenged popular stereotypes of gay men, such as the fit, fashion-savvy sidekick and the tragic or suicidal homosexual. In the process of fighting these stereotypical media images, they illustrated what Jose Esteban Munoz has defined as disidentification, where the survival strategies, the minority subject practices, in order to negotiate a phobic majoritarian public sphere that continuously elides or punishes subjects who fail to conform to normative culture, end quote. Thus, I argue that through reframing the ancient mythological narratives, all of these productions demonstrate that same-sex love is as compelling and legitimate as the canonical man-woman relationships depicted in the classical texts. And they did so in, um, in the process of trying to join the fight for making gay marriage legalized in the US. So whereas the first four chapters studied performances from cultures that have long been marginalized by the association of classical theater with the Euro-American elite or, or with, with uh, underrepresented groups that have long been marginalized with the Euro, by the Euro-American elite, my final chapter discusses a different type of minority, US veterans. Although veterans today, particularly the disabled, are a minority population that comprises less than 1% of the total population. In ancient Athens, veterans had a direct connection to ancient Greek drama, 
and the majority of the ancient playwrights and the audience would have had firsthand experience of combat. As Jonathan Shea has famously stated, Greek tragedy was a theater of combat veterans, by combat veterans, and for combat veterans. By focusing on Aquila theaters of female Philoctetes, I explore the ways in which Greek drama can function to challenge the stereotype of the disabled veteran, or the messed up, out of luck, out of control, uneducated Joe Sixpack vet, as well as the alternative to that stereotype, the Chris Kyle-esque superhero. So Aquila replaces these stereotypes with an image of veterans as strong, artistic, intellectual, emotional, healthy, in fact, beautiful, but also vulnerable, breakable, and ultimately human. Um, so a lot of the work of this production, this basically was a production of Philoctetes where the only change in the show was to make Philoctetes a woman. And the idea was to draw attention to women vets and their experiences. Um, some people I know who saw the show said it didn't do much for them, but I think what, what they might have missed is how much of this production really happened in the movement and the movement of the chorus. Um, the director of Aquila, the, art, the artistic director, the director of this production as well, Desiree Sanchez, um, used to be a dancer and she does wonderful, wonderful movement work with the actors. And the ways in which these are all veterans, these actors, all of them are actual veterans performing in the show. And the way that she worked with them, the movement choices, it was a very masculine kind of uh, energy that really sort of contrasted when you're looking at the Philoctetes character. Um, there she is. Um, who's sort of trying to fit into this. And a lot of, of course, what happens in these productions as well is not what's actually always taking place on the stage. This wasn't really a full production. Um, it, was, uh, it was sort of a smaller production done at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. But a lot of what happens in these productions too happens in the after talk and the way that uh, women veterans would talk about their experiences, but also just family ve veterans, uh, families of veterans. Um, And there's another theater company that I discussed in this last chapter that also works with veterans in the States. That's Theater of War Ensemble. Um, it's actually the company is outside the wire and they do many different types of uh, sort of social justice events through readings of Greek tragedies. They don't do any productions at all. There's no straight productions, but they have famous actors come in and do readings. Um, I went to several of their events with veterans and they're, they're very well attended and um, uh, definitely do an excellent job of generating discussion among the audience. Um, one of the things that I, I struggled with when I was thinking about these two companies and thinking about the contrast in them is how much I found that with the theater of war events, the discussion always seemed to revolve around PTSD. And in many ways, I, I began to feel that it actually became a real reinforcement of that. That therefore all veterans talk about or the only problems they have are related somehow to PTSD and this kind of stress. I actually know many vets that are really annoyed about that. Um, and I remember walking home with my 
uh, daughter one day from the park and talking to uh, a vet who used to fly fighter jets in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he said, you know, he, he works at Goldman Sachs now. Um, and he said he ran out of staples or something one day and the, he, he was kind of feeling a little bit frustrated. He had to go and get more. Blah, blah. And the woman sitting at the desk next to him said, oh my God, are you okay? I thought you were gonna have an episode. And he's sort of like, you know, just because she knew she was a veteran. She's like, you know, do you know what I used to do in the military? I'm not going to have a fit over not having some staples. But he kind of felt that this stereotype exists, and it's sort of a catch-22 because you want to get the word out about PTSD, right? But at the same time, doing so can actually work in the, in the opposite direction as well, to where that's what everybody thinks about veterans. They all must be suffering from some sort of PTSD. So again, it goes back to that great quote by Brian Eugenio Herrera, that sometimes those who want to fight most loudly against stereotypes, ironically, you wind up reinforcing them instead. So it's a, it becomes a very fine line. And um, uh, it was sort of that thread that sort of ran through a lot of the productions and the discourse about the productions that I studied. So the majority of these productions that I looked at all took place in the last 10 years, a period during which time America saw its first black president, Barack Obama, and its first female nominee for president, Hillary Clinton, at the same time that it has seen Clinton's 2016 opponent, now President Donald J. Trump, inspire protests across the nation and make headlines such as, is Donald Trump a racist? And what do people mean when they say Donald Trump is a racist? With contentious debates about immigration, sexual harassment, racial and ethnic profiling, not to mention who can use a public toilet, issues of identity are perhaps more than ever playing a central role in American life and politics. So in all of the chapters, I'm mindful of the cultural dynamics that have been taking place. Each chapter situates my case studies within the context of key political and social events that exhibit a certain popularized discourse about a respective community within a given historical moment. For example, in my first chapter, which discussed the three performances by the two black theater companies in Harlem in 2008 and 2010, I contextualized uh, the case studies within the discourse surrounding the presidential campaign and election of Barack Obama. In my chapter on veterans, I discussed the work of Aquila and Outside the Wire within the context of popular discourse about vets generated by Hollywood films, such as The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and American Sniper. This type of popular performance, according to Herrera, quote, is often where such ideas about race, ethnicity, and nation stir to life, end quote. For this reason, in all of my chapters, I mention such mass media events because they can be instrumental in reflecting and affecting ideas and attitudes in the culture at large. Ideas that the various small venue theatrical performances discussed in this book often aim to counter. Thus, my methodology isn't an empirical approach that attempts to discern what a given audience has said about a given production. Rather, integrating the fields of performance, cultural studies, historiography, and theater criticism I worked like a cultural historian examining the corporeal signifiers of each performance. Everything in the costuming, the set, the gestures, the space, who's in the audience, how the audience re reacted, 
I looked at all of those elements of performance as if they were artifacts. Theatrical space, audience and costumes are the materials that I documented and situated within specific, specific moments to build my arguments. And the process, each source, each production, is not simply a performance, but rather what Vilmar Sauter has called a theatrical event. That's Sauter's term for the joint creation of meaning from the actions and reactions of both performers and spectators. The theatrical event arises from the dynamic connection between performance and spectators that through my presence in the audience, I help to create. Erika Fischer-Lichter has referred to this interaction as the feedback loop. Artists have the ability, she says, to quote, force new behavior patterns on the audience, often plunge them into a crisis, thus denying the spectators the position of distance, uninvolved observers. Through their actions and behaviors, the actors and spectators constitute elements of the feedback loop, which in turn generates the performance itself, end quote. In other words, the performance has transferred, transformed me just as I transformed them. It's that symbiotic connection. In this way, I examined the function of performance in transmitting social knowledge, not by attempting to discern what a given audience or critic may have said about a production, or what the production has said to or about them, but instead by looking to what Herrera has called the, quote, embedded logic expressed by the performance work itself, end quote. In other words, I'm interested in the give and take between a performance and its cultural and historical environment, the embedded logic within the production that the artists and audience, myself included, create, but over which they have limited control. I focus not on any individual intention or response, but rather on the cultural and historical forces that shaped ideas, individual and communal, and influence responses to them. In this way, I work like a critic and historian of contemporary life performance and its role in creating and reflecting social, cultural, and historical contexts while articulating questions about American identity. In the process, I've sought to document and explain the embodied discourse of each contemporary production and its ability at sometimes to challenge at other times to reinforce representations of minority communities with minoritarian communities within the majoritarian sphere. It's hard to say. According to Helena Foley, the history of this democratic turn in which all of these productions participate begins in the late 1960s and 70s when artists such as Judith Molina, Julian Beck, Richard Schechner, and Peter Sellers began to politicize Greek drama. The growth of the movement may have been encouraged by practical factors, such as the greater availability of accessible translations and a built-in audience that makes the work marketable for small theater companies, which face an ever-dwindling supply of public funding. In any case, the trend extended into the 1980s when as Foley states, quote, identity politics concerning gender, race, and nationality played an increasingly central role in American theater, and US society became to be viewed as a mosaic rather than a melting pot." Yet in addition to such reasons for the growing interest, another that may attract underrepresented, underrepresented communities to the subject 
is the insight that tragedy in particular gives to the inadequacies and failures of the justice system. Foley has suggested that Greek tragedy is incompatible with America's belief in downplaying history and the forces of social determinism in favor of optimistic stories of hard work and struggle leading to success. Members of communities who have been traditionally excluded from power, or in the case of veterans abandoned by it, have often approached the Horatio Alger myth, the classic American rags to riches story. They've approached that myth with great skepticism. This skepticism, this appreciation for an understanding of the ways in which fate can intervene, or in this case, the ways in which unfavorable social circumstances can limit opportunity and equal justice. This is what in part the artists presented here have expressed in connecting Greek tragedy to their respective communities. But perhaps another answer to the question of why these artists are attracted to Greek drama is the simplest. Why not? Um, in other words, perhaps as David Roman has suggested, instead of fetishizing these works by minority artists as exceptional, why not, as Suzanne Laurie Park suggests, just watch, just look, just take it in, end quote. Whatever the implicit or explicit reasons for their interests may be, the contemporary artists I've presented today have been demonstrating the close connection between the themes of Greek tragedy in their respective community in ways that present powerful oppositional voices to combat stereotypes that contribute to the inequality they experience within the social and legal system of justice. So I have much more I could show and say, um, but I think it's probably best to stop now and. Um, if anybody has questions, I could explain my approaches to, for, to different productions more um, or give uh, plot summaries if people are interested in, in those or for further things. And then if there's still time, I can always show more pictures. Thank you.